This is Founders Talk, an interview podcast hosted by me, Adam Stachowiak, and we profile founders building businesses online as well as offline. And if you found this show on iTunes, we're also on the web at 5x5.tv slash Founders Talk. And if you're on Twitter, follow Founders Talk as well as me, Adam Stack. I want to thank today's sponsors, Less Accounting and Flow from MetaLab. Less Accounting was built for people that hate bookkeeping and accounting software. Less Accounting automates many tasks you'd normally be doing manually, which saves you stress and saves you less gray hair. So, in reality, Less Accounting will not only help you with your bookkeeping needs, you'll also save your hairline. And that's kind of cool. Give Less Accounting a try today at lessaccounting.com. And by Flow. When the world's top teams want to get something done, they turn to Flow from MetaLab. Flow lets you create, organize, discuss, and accomplish tasks with anyone, anytime, from anywhere. Flow's critically acclaimed web, desktop, and mobile clients have revolutionized the way teams are getting things done. Get started today with a free 14-day trial at GetFlow.com. And today's guest is Peter Cooper, the founder of Cooper Press. Enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Peter Cooper. He's uh, one of my favorites, actually. I'm really, really excited to have Peter on the show. We've had some chats outside of this podcast before. We've never actually met face-to-face, but Peter's the founder at Cooper Press, his independent publishing company, and he's an awesome dude. So, Peter, say hello, please. Hi there. Yeah, I'm uh, flattered. So you're you're from the UK though, so I'm calling across the pond, uh, which uh, that's what I call it at least. It's a big old ocean, but uh, you're calling from across the pond, and you're in the UK. What what part of UK are you from? I'm originally from London, but I don't I haven't lived down in London or down south as you would call it if you're from the UK. Uh, down south has a totally different meaning in the UK. It's kind of like the uh, posh area down south. Um, I haven't lived down there for 10 years, so uh, I am now a full kind of card-carrying northerner, as we would call, um, and I would live, well, not I would live, I do live in uh, Louth, Lincolnshire, which is very, very remote, middle of nowhere kind of stuff. So what would, uh, not that I want to go digging into where you're actually living at, but I think that someone as exciting as you are and the things you're involved in tech-wise and into the scene, I would imagine you living in... Not so much the posh areas, but at least where things are happening. What brings you out in the country? <laughs> this is where I start like going off on a rant saying, oh, I'm really antisocial and whatnot. But uh, no, it's, it's just how life's kind of panned out and my wife is from this area. And I must admit, I'm not super duper into like always being at events and stuff like that. It's something I can, I can take or leave and I, I will do like a few times a year. So I really don't like sort – of, I kind of have, a, I guess, a life – kind of uh, thing of claustrophobia i don't like being surrounded by too many people and you know don't like being in like heavy traffic and all this type of thing so i really do like the the rural lifestyle and you know with the internet and broadband all that type of thing it's really made it possible so perhaps 10 years ago you know over 10 years ago i wouldn't have been able to live in an area like this but now it's almost like i live on the internet in a sense you know and i'm sure a lot of uh, us and uh, listeners are the same yeah so for the uninitiated on Cooper Press, Peter Cooper, uh, you know, who are you and what do you do nowadays? Well, as you may have noticed, I have a homepage where I kind of keep like an, almost like a live uh, resume uplisted. And that's not just for the benefit of people that are going along to read it. It's also for my own benefit because I kind of lose track of all the different things that 
I'm involved in uh, because I just like to try so many different things. And I did recognize myself at one point as one of these people that like always gets excited about a project, starts it, and then doesn't finish. So something I've really hammered down on in the last few years is making sure I finish things and release things. So that's why things are now starting to come together. So what do I do? Um, I publish stuff. Uh, that's not a massive thing at the moment, but uh, you know, in terms of actual like books or anything like that. Uh, but I have released a screencast that's done quite well. I'm sure we'll talk about that. But then in a more kind of fluid way, I do publish email newsletters. That's something we'll talk about, um, programming-related newsletters, um, doing sort of very well with that at the moment. Uh, I'm also on several podcasts, so some of the listeners may have heard me on things like The Ruby Show, The Dranskit Show, and uh, there's a couple of others I've been sort of involved with from time to time. Uh, I wrote a book called Beginning Ruby, publish, um, which was published with A-Press, and I also um, sold a website that was reasonably popular at the time. It was the first sort of tagged code snippet site. Uh, that was uh, back in 2005, 2007. Uh, that ran between, and now DZone own that uh, and I also had a, a business that um you know this actually had like funding and everything um real big serious stuff um that basically took uh feeds so like rss atom feeds and stuff like that and then turned it into uh, this kind of like javascript embed you could do on your site and that doesn't sound very exciting now but back in 2004 yeah it was, started, it was really exciting you know that, that was, was when rss yeah. was super hot then too right exactly so uh yeah, so it's a mixture of all those types of things. And, uh, yeah, I'm co-chairing an O'Reilly conference later this year. So I guess you probably get a feel for um, if there's a, a nice pie somewhere nearby and you know, I can put my kind of hand in it, I'm going to do it. So, <laughs> Well, I want to say congrats to you, too, on on being a co-chair of O'Reilly's Fluent Conf. I mean, that's uh, – um, I think it's, like, all about advanced JavaScript, isn't it? It's not so much advanced JavaScript. Um, it's the actually, best in JavaScript. Yeah, we're trying to be, like, be very inclusive and not just covering JavaScript even, although that's obviously what helps really push the, the idea and the theme behind the conference. But it's JavaScript and beyond. So you may have seen, I don't know whether you subscribe to it or not, but I have a newsletter called HTML5 Weekly, which... I do. Yeah, which that newsletter doesn't just cover html5 um because you know there's this whole argument over what does html5 mean well i've decided to have that really broad inclusive version which includes like webgl and you know things that aren't officially part of the spec um and that's what we've done with this conference as well so if you take that concept it's not just javascript it's also html5 webgl uh, you know um, developing games you know like zynga type stuff and uh, Facebook games and all those types of things that JavaScript is being used in, but it's not necessarily all just dry syntax and backbone and, you know, like coffee script and very sort of code level things. It's also some of the big picture stuff. And for those of you who uh, are listening to the show that aren't uber geeky like uh, maybe Peter and I might be, and he's certainly far more geeky than I am in terms of like writing coffee script and uh, using meta languages on top of languages, uh, the the stuff he's talking about is uh, is a lot of fun. And if you're not uh, subscribed to his newsletters, uh, you might do well by it because you learn a thing or two at least. And when you when you talk to people, you'd know what you're talking about. But when is uh, when is FluidConf? It's May. Yeah, end of May, May 29 through 31st, and that's in San Francisco. So what uh, – I guess before we go into the intro of you, I'm just kind of curious before we go into that, um, what got you involved with O'Reilly? Do you like have a contact? Do they call you? Like how did you get involved in this? 
Um, well, long term, I haven't actually had like major, major contact with uh, O'Reilly. I've actually had a couple of blog comments from Tim O'Reilly over the years, which is very sort of interesting because he's definitely one of my sort of heroes and someone I'd aspire to be like. Um, but I've had a, a relationship with them in terms of like reviewing their books and stuff like that. Um, so I think I'm sort of, you know, my name was kind of known to them. Um, but in terms of actual direct contact of doing something like a conference, none at all. They literally, um, found me through, uh, you know, they did a, they did research in their network and my name kept coming up because I run JavaScript weekly. So this is probably a theme that you'll see a lot on this, um, in this interview actually, where I'll say, oh, I did such and such. And then it turned into this whole other thing. Um, and that's pretty much, you know, in my entire life i've started out doing one thing and then that has randomly spawned into something else that's totally different but really cool wasn't it uh wasn't it you that actually said start lots and start small so that's um, kind of like your own advice yeah i think actually we we you, you've alluded to this in a previous podcast where we um you sort of said i was giving you some advice and stuff and i think i may have said something along those lines like increasing your luck surface area i know You've had other people on the uh, the podcast use those exact words before, um, but it's something I totally buy into. You know, that's uh, what it's all about. So I guess then for the – you've already kind of described who you are and what you do, but not, not exactly. Let's go back a little further. So we'll just describe you as a technologist in a, in a sense, and you've done a lot of stuff. You're a dabbler. Some things stick, some things don't. But let's go back further in the past. Where did you start? Like you're – how old are you right now? I'm 30 now. You're so. 30. Yeah, and I feel so, really old for it. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm 32, going to be 33, so I'm I'm really old too. All right, Gramps, <laughs> I'm actually older than you, so that's that's kind of <laughs> I, I do got one up on you. Yeah. So when uh, when did you get started in technology in general? Like when did you hit this vein of being a programmer? Even this is one of these topics that I don't find hard to talk about. Like I have no problems talking about it, but. It all feels very vague in my mind. My memory is just of the past is like really weird and it kind of like changes and stuff. Um, so don't think I'm lying here, but I might be slightly vague. Um, in terms of programming, my uh, father, you know, he'd really like came up from like nowhere uh, pretty much. Uh, you know, he was born into like a very large family and they were quite poor and, uh, you know, this and that. Um, so he came from like very humble beginnings and he you know didn't do very good with you know education or anything like that but he eventually joined the army and then um he moved on from there and he became an electronics engineer and he really kind of you know drug him you know, you know bought himself up um just by like self study and all that type of thing um and so when i was born you know he was sort of in the middle of that process and he was really he kind of saw the promise in um, microcomputers, like in the early '80s, and so you know he's very keen to sort of own one. Um, so you know he worked lots, and you know he bought one of these, and um, I can't remember what the first one he bought was. I think it was probably a machine that we had in the UK called a ZX80, I believe, um, which was made by Sinclair. Um, that may be a name that's kind of familiar to uh, the wider audience. Because um, they made a machine called the Spectrum that went on to be, I think, one of the world's biggest selling uh, microcomputers. And I don't actually remember beginning to program. I do know that I was, um, I've been told this by my parents that I was doing like very, very minor messing around with like the keyboard and stuff when I was about three years old. Um, which actually doesn't seem that impressive nowadays because my two year old daughter's already messing around with iPads and all this type of thing. 
Um, but I know that I was messing around with basic and stuff when I was about six. I don't really remember many of the specifics, but I remember just a little bit. Um, and then I sort of went through, I did a little bit of, um, six, five Oh two. Um, and then I actually do remember specifically sitting down and learning C in 1990. So I guess I would have been what nine. So, but the thing is, this is all going to sound really weird because, you think, oh, right, I started really early, so it's kind of a natural part of the thinking for me. And in a way, it is, but I don't think that actually made me a better programmer overall. Because if you look at my code now, like, you know, there's some good stuff, but I'm definitely not sort of on the level of, uh, you know, a lot of the people that perhaps, you know, you've even interviewed. So, um, but that whole idea of programming being like a way of life, that has been with me the whole time. Um, so that's pretty much where, you know, I come from. And. <clears throat> I guess if we, we take it a little bit further, um, as a teenager, I did start getting interested in like the demo scene and stuff like that. That was a really big uh, thing in the 90s to kind of produce these um, kind of coded demos that really showed off what a machine could do and you know, fancy graphics, stuff like that. And I wasn't really that heavy into like the mathematics side of it, but I did make some stuff. I did some stuff with Turbo Pascal. Um, but then programming started to fall off the radar somewhat as a, in my sort of middle teenage years. Um, and I was actually going to kind of study and go on to um, do law at uh, college. So it was a little bit weird um, how things panned out. But uh, I did kind of warn you at that uh, at the start. I think I've probably gone off track now. So I, if you want to bring it back on track. No, no, no. You're right <laughs> on track. And it's, it's kind of cool. This. I mean, I think it's wild how life kind of throws you and i wouldn't say this is a curveball for you but in in some people's cases it's a curveball like you know you just use the example of you going to potentially study law and actually pursue that kind of career and then you know but you did have you know your roots in programming so to speak and then now you're obviously a programmer you you do podcasts about technology everything that you do is and i think you even um, you know, say it on your on your Twitter handle where you, you everything you do is pretty much programming related. Mm. You know, everything from your you know publishing. You know, you got Ruby Inside, you've got Ruby Now, you've got Cooper Press, which I think um, Cooper Press kind of just came to be because it had to, right? Like you've been doing so much, you needed an umbrella. Well, kind of. Actually, there is a, there is a, another part to this whole story that perhaps will tie all the loose ends together. Please do. And, well, that is that when I was um, young, and I you know I do remember this quite well. I whenever I learned something, so I would you know I'd often be like reading like books about math and like just basic stuff. Nothing you know wasn't a prodigy or anything. Um, but whenever I learned something, I would like get one of my own books out, and so this is like from perhaps the age of about eight kind of up i would then get one of my own like exercise books out and i would like start writing down as if i was teaching it to someone else so i would like be trying to make my own um textbook as it were and you know they weren't like particularly good efforts but they were a really good way for me to learn and you know i, I for some reason i just really loved that idea of making um books and making material and i kind of dropped off of doing that when i was about 11 or 12 um and sort of didn't think about it again and then I did um, do a, a brief spell of about two or three years of being a freelance writer um, around the sort of the dot-com boom time. I actually um, ran some sites for internet.com who were you know, pretty big at the time, um, perhaps not quite so much now. They're still around. Um, and it was only in the last like sort of three or four years that I remembered what I did as a kid and how like I was really interested in publishing, literally kind of like, like a built-in thing. Because my parents were never, you know, inclined that way. They didn't want to write books. They didn't 
well, didn't hardly write at all, um, you know, in day-to-day life, whereas I had that built in and I really wanted to make books. So once I realized that, um, I sort of started thinking, hang on, there's obviously some sort of like uh, self-fulfilling prophecy in action here. And uh, I really just kind of took that on board and it just made me feel really good about actually not just coding all of the time and, you know, doing contract work and saying, right, I am a, a developer, I'm a programmer of some sort, but saying I am a publisher who programs. And it made me feel really good about that. So it wasn't that publishing was some kind of like fallback um, because, you know, perhaps I couldn't code well enough or I couldn't get a job at Google or whatever it was that, you know, is the accolade that programmers aim for. It's actually that I want to be in publishing. You know, I want to do the types of things that Tim O'Reilly does. I want to have, you know, be involved in that scene, but then have programming as the base of it because I, you know, understand the programming and enjoy programming as well. Um, I think that's quite a weird angle to take. There's not that many people I know of that do similar things. Um, you know, obviously there was the guy that came up with Dr. Dobbs. He was kind of in a similar boat. Um, there's Jeffrey Grossenbach of Peep Code, who uh, many listeners may be familiar with. Um, you know, there's a handful of people, but I just thought that was a unique mix. And that's why I feel really good about what I'm doing now and making things like uh, Cooper Press as an umbrella for all of it. So your true passion, I mean – you haven't heard it yet. The podcast just came out today, which uh, today is what Wednesday, Tuesday. Um, a show just came out today where I talked to Francisco Down, and that's a long conversation I had with him. But basically, at one point in his career, he got laid off from a job, and he said, "Okay, from this point on, I'm only going to do what interests me." So, if you had to say what interests you, would it be publishing or would it be programming? <laughs> wow, you put me on the spot now. Um, I would say it might be one of these things where I flip-flop because I'm a little bit like that. I do have you know my main passion or my main favorite song or whatever. It will change on a year-by-year basis. Um, at this moment, I would say publishing. So if I had to avoid you know programming stuff entirely uh you know i could go into doing a, a newsletter about gaming or you know any other type of topic along those lines that perhaps i had an interest in so uh yeah i think that's where i would thrive most although i could definitely make more money i think if i decided to just not publishing on the head and uh you know be one of these kind of contract coders contract coders so uh let's talk about mistakes i suppose to say so you I've I've heard you say that you're kind of a semi-successful entrepreneur, which I think is kind of uh, just being humble because I know you, and uh, and that's by your own admission. Uh, you've had two, I guess, fairly good exits from companies that you've started or things that you've started. You've been able to make something and sell it. Um, let's let's talk about some things like that. Like I think these are probably the first things that you've actually built up. The first one was a code snippet site, and the second one was a, a feed digest, which was an RSS feed kind of consumer and do something else with kind of thing. Yeah. What, uh, what, where, what kind of, what stage of, of life were you in at the time these two projects sprouted? Um, I would have been, what, in my early to mid-20s. Uh, it was around the time that I was learning um, Rails and Ruby, literally around sort of 2004, 2005. And uh, although actually the uh, Feed Digest thing predated that a little bit um, because the whole thing was actually built in Perl. So that was my language that I uh, was into before Ruby. Um, very, very painful times. Um, so, yeah, where was I at? It was – I was kind of at this really weird point in life because I was actually – I just met my now wife and – you know, things were starting to perhaps come a bit more into focus, whereas I've been sort of wandering a bit aimlessly before then, um, not doing a great deal, not earning a great deal. Um, 
kind of almost just getting by doing uh, like freelance jobs and you know maintaining people's websites even like you know some web design stuff like that uh so it was a very vague time um but i was really getting into uh delicious and delicious came out what's it 2004 i think and i was really into blogging uh at the time i had a blog since about uh, well, actually since just before my 18th birthday so that would have been um 1999 uh back when the kind of the genre i was involved in was called a everywhere and nothing sites which actually was like almost a name for like uh, blogging before the word blog came along um, so I had a site like that, and I really wanted to get my delicious bookmarks onto the site and couldn't find a way of doing it. They didn't have any widgets or you know, embed code or anything. Uh, it wasn't that common to do that at that time. Uh, so I came up with some Perl code that would read the RSS feed, turn it into the JavaScript I could embed, and hey, presto. Um, and that's where uh, Feed Digest initially came from. Um, and because there was this whole scene going on at the time, there were these new sites popping up that were startups and, uh, you know, like the sort of thing that you would see now with Hacker News, that kind of community seemed to be coming together really well in the mid, um, sort of 2000s with Web 2.0 and stuff like that. So I was really tempted by all of that type of stuff to like, hang on, I could turn this into a service. I could charge people for that service, um, and take that approach. Whereas if I'd done it perhaps five or six years earlier, that wouldn't have even, you know, come to mind. Um, so that's where that came from. But then the Code Snippets site uh, that you mentioned was a totally different thing entirely. That was literally just a, um, like a weekend experiment. I literally spent 48 hours uh, coding almost like all the way through and just made this one thing in one go. It was kind of a, an exercise to help, uh, you know, sort of learn Rails and also sort of show off some uh, of my sort of Rails skills at the time. You know, it was kind of a common thing to make an app and sort of show it off at the time. Um, and that's where that came from. So it very much spontaneous, um, but it turned into something good that I was able to sell. And so you did. You actually had some, didn't you have some angel investing involved in that as well? Like, um, well, I guess before we get into the, to that piece there, you said you wanted to take RSS feeds and do something else with them. And this, in this case, you were talking about being able to consume them into your blog and do other things with it. But like, did you think that it would get to a point where you can actually sell it to somebody else and make some money from it? Or was this just like, yeah, I'll, I'll try it out and I'll learn the program or I'll learn my way around things and uh, become uh, create one more tool to be able to publish differently? It's very fair to say that I was very naive about business at the time. Um, even though, you know, I'd been self-employed for several years, uh, as I now realize, looking back, being self-employed doesn't mean you know much about business necessarily. Um, it just means you're pretty much doing a job and you're the boss and you may well be getting people to pay you for your time. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean you know how to run a business. And yeah, that was certainly true. true of me. Um, you know, I didn't really know anything about running a business and literally nothing you know at that point and uh, you know kind of as perhaps at the time of life where i thought i knew it know it all and you know so on and so forth so i'm just going to do it all alone and uh, start charging people and all that type of thing and it went all right but i didn't really have enough of a big picture thing going on and enough experience of business to really build it into something that i thought okay i'm going to scale this up and i'm going to get this many customers they're going to pay me this and it's going to earn this amount of money and uh, you know, I'll be able to sell it for whatever or, you know, perhaps just run it, you know, permanently, sort of like first some signals sort of style. Um, none of that occurred to me. I literally just set very arbitrary prices that I thought people would pay, which is a big mistake. Um, I did a blog post all about this. Uh, you know, literally, I, I made so many mistakes. Um, and I kind of ended up uh, being approached by 
a Russian company who now own this feed digest, and uh, they offered a, you know a, an amount of money that sounded reasonable. Um, it was a six figure amount, and I was at that point where because I was in charge of everything, and I wasn't very good at business. I had two issues. One issue was that if ever anything went down, I was responsible for it, and. That was getting a bit of a nightmare. I was getting emails in the middle of the night. I'd have to fix things and stuff like that. Um, but then the second thing, because I didn't know how to run a business very well, it was making you know a pretty good income for me. But it wasn't scaling to that point where I could, uh, you know, and I didn't, I couldn't have any way of knowing how to scale it so that I, I could actually hire people and turn it into a what would I would call a proper business. Um, that was the real big issue. So when they came along with a six-figure offer, I was like, you know, Let's I do it. Yeah, I spoke to the angel um, investor because we didn't get like full-on VC. Um, but I had an angel investor um, whose name's Kelly Smith, and he's still doing VC stuff. He's done um, some reasonably high-profile ones actually recently, I believe. Um, he's available at CuriousOffice.com. Anyone's interested in checking him out? Um, but uh, yeah, he was very patient with me, and I must admit, he did get a bit angry with me because I'm a bit. Uh, you know, kind of autonomous. So, like, I would often do things and, you know, change around things and wouldn't sort of be in contact with him enough and stuff like that. Um, so, I think he was reasonably happy to sort of have a profitable exit from it. You know, he did um, recoup his investment and quite a bit more. So, that was good. Um, so, that's what happened. But uh, it was all just from a naivety um, of business. But I learned so much from that process that I don't actually regret it. And I wouldn't say, yeah, I want to go back and do that again to do it right. Because otherwise, I wouldn't have learned the mistakes, um, you know, the things that came out of the mistakes that uh, did. Well, let's talk about the things you've learned. I, I opened this piece of the conversation up by saying mistakes. And I didn't mean to say you doing these two things was a mistake. But you even alluded to um, – the fact that you've done a few things in this that were mistakes. Um, the first one was that you sold it. And you said you kind of regretted doing it. And the second one was that you passed on getting written up on TechCrunch <laughs> with this, right? I mean, because you hadn't sold it yet. It was still yours. You could have gotten written up in TechCrunch. You could have been one of those dot-com boomers that, you know, I could have been chasing you down. You'd be saying, no, Adam, I'm not coming on your podcast because I'm way too popular or something, you know? <laughs> um, well, talk about talk about those mistakes that that you've said. I'm not saying you made mistakes, but you said those were mistakes in, in uh, some things I've read from about you. Yeah, the thing about the the TechCrunch thing is actually I've I get I guess I got a bit of a reputation for being a bit of a, a Michael Arrington sort of fanboy. I uh, followed TechCrunch when it was very very early on. It had like this really generic template, and you know I was always commenting and uh, stuff like that. So I was kind of known to Michael Arrington, not buddies or like having conversations or anything, but uh, he got in touch um, sometime in, I think, late 2006. And he's like, oh, you know, I want to write this up. Um, you know, can we talk about it or whatever? And I sort of said to him, oh, well, I'm working on this big version too. And I don't, you know, want all these people coming in until, uh, you know, I've got this big version two out and it will rock and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, people have written about this problem before is that when you have this big version two on the table, it often never turns up. Or if it does, it's kind of like, You've taken version one and just slapped a few things on just to make a deadline. Um, or even upset current users of, of version one who really like it. Exactly. So 
that's why I turned it down. And obviously TechCrunch wasn't quite the same thing then as it, you know, we've seen in the last couple of years. Um, yeah, big difference. That was that was pre-2007, so that was definitely a big difference. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was still you know, a pretty big deal. And there were venture capitalists reading it and stuff like that. So it would have been very cool. Um, and it was more of a technologist audience at the time that would have used my service. You know, it was a very technical service. Um, but, you know, I kind of uh, put it on the back burner and um, – just the whole stress of the business and not doing it right, that kind of led to its sale. So we never actually got to that. Um, so, yes, I do see that as a bit of a mistake, but what would have been worse is having all that publicity and having something that couldn't cope with it. And the reason that I had something that couldn't cope with it was because, as I said, I was naive at business at the time. I didn't have any, you know, kind of like extra uh, money around to help it scale or whatever. You know, the angel round was very small. Uh, and I guess I was quite very protective about it because I kind of had this attitude that like, oh, well, if I lose this money that, you know, I've been given, then I'm going to have to pay it back just because I've kind of like, I guess I've kind of got that principle <laughs> ingrained, um, right. you know, so I kind of was very protective of it, not spending it in the way I should have and things like that. So that's what I mean by being naive and all of these you know problems that, uh, you know, you've mentioned pretty much boil back down to that, that I was, I was stabbing in the dark. I was a programmer at the time, um, not knowing what I was doing. And, uh, you know, I didn't have the guidance like people do now with things like Y Combinator and, you know, all these different startup incubators. What they do is they take people that are like I was then and, you know, give them a small amount of money, like an angel investment type thing, and really launch them out there. And, you know, they do guide them for all of these problems. And I would have perhaps thrived in that Y Combinator environment at the time, but it just didn't exist. Not cool at all. So let's let's talk about, I guess, the effect of life after this then. So you were able to get out of this company. You said it's near six figures or just over six figures. So either way, it's it's still a decent amount of money, regardless if it's in pounds or if it's in U.S. dollars. It's still a, a decent chunk. What was life like for you when you did that did you, did you feel like you had lost your purpose and now you were like okay what do i do now what, what happened no i was actually very happy with it um and i must admit that's I thought, if i said i regret the sale i i meant it in a very philosophical way where you know i regret that that was the outcome but i don't actually regret doing the sale at the time given the circumstances and you know because obviously it gave me a very healthy boost um you know to my bank balance which was very very low being self-employed and not particularly great at business um so you know it definitely gave me this springboard to do all of the things that i've done since it's you know having that kind of extra level of padding there is something that has given me the confidence being quite a risk adverse person not adverse risk, risk averse person um it's given me that kind of cushion there that i know that if things go really bad, I can you know start to rely on it, and that is what has led to all of the other things I've done since. So I don't regret the sale from that point of view. It has really helped boost me into doing some other things that perhaps, if I hadn't done that, if I'd literally just shut the thing down and made no money from it at all, I would have gone back to doing you know sporadic freelance work, contracting stuff like that. Whereas once I had that money, that became optional. I could do a bit of contracting. But then I could also just pick my own little experiments and things that I was playing with, like uh, Ruby Inside was the main thing at the time, uh, a blog about Ruby. Um, I could take that and I could say, yeah, I'm going to invest some time into doing this because I have this money in the bank that if I have a problem, I'll fall back on it. So your first, I guess, uh, pro blog, as you as you might even say, Ruby Inside, that was a, a, an experiment? 
Yes, that came off the back of, and again, I mentioned before about these weird chains of events. Right. I had a personal blog, um, as I said, from 1999, and I kept that going until, I've still got one, but I almost never post on it. And I was posting about Ruby, and you know, I was learning the Ruby language, all that type of thing. And I had an editor from A-Press uh, get in touch, and he said, you know, do you want to write a Ruby book? We haven't got any Ruby books in their lineup. Um, actually, I think they may have had one, but it was like one about e-commerce or something. It wasn't very specifically about Ruby. And he says, do you want to write a Ruby book? So we eventually threw some ideas backwards and forwards, and I thought, well, I really want to write a beginner's Ruby book, um, kind of in the style of a 1980s programming kind of guide. And I did. And um, because I was you know, really into that whole blogging scene and promoting yourself using a blog, I thought, this book needs a blog. So I was listening to a podcast by Jeffrey Grossenbach, um, previously mentioned, uh, the guy who runs Peep Code. But he ran at the time the Ruby on Rails podcast. And he was speaking to a guy from, I think it was Intel. And he was asking, you know, do they use Ruby at Intel or whatever? You know, and he's, he made some kind of quip about, you know, is it Ruby inside? <laughs> Um, because the whole Intel inside thing that they don't use anymore. Right. So I was, I was thinking that yeah. with, with the name. I was actually thinking that. I thought that's such a cool name for a blog. So I just took that name and Ruby inside, and there you go. And now there's actually other people have kind of almost like been inspired by the idea from me. So there's like dartinside.com, and it's nothing to do with me. Like, you know, there's these other sites that have used a similar name. Um, but yeah, so I started out the blog, and the whole point of the blog was to promote the book. But. There was this kind of big gaping void. There was like this big demand for uh, Ruby materials online at the time that wasn't being met by the current sources. And I started posting just these little tidbits of Ruby code and, oh, look, there's a new library that does such and such. And the mouse subscribers just went up and up really, really fast. And I could track this using FeedBurner, which was another big company at the time, uh, then acquired by Google a few years ago. Uh, and I was checking the you know, subscriber numbers, and it was into the thousands, and it just went up really, really quick. And obviously, it reached a point, and again, this is being naive about business. I could have probably got advertising and you know run job ads and stuff like that really early on because I had the, the numbers. But it wasn't until Jeffrey Grossenbach again, his name's going to keep coming up, he said, oh, I'm sort of really trying to promote this peep code thing. This was reasonably early on in the peep code story. He said, I'm trying to promote peep code. I'm going to sponsor, uh, I think, about five or six different popular Ruby blogs. I'll give you $100 a month, and all you have to do is put like uh, my banner on the side of your site. Now, at the time, $100 a month, I was thinking, wow, that's really cool, $100 a month for doing nothing. <laughs> and the funny thing is now is that I would love to pay people $100 a month to, ha right? to, to have my ad on an equivalent site. Like, it's an absolute bargain. Um, but he kind of, you know, it was a new thing at the time to advertise on blogs. And, you know, he, I think he actually did benefit a lot from that with Peep Code, you know, because it was on all the popular Ruby blogs. Um, which kind of, you know, helped uh, boost That's his business. That's great visibility for him, Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, he, he just had a great idea there. He was, he had that business savvy that I didn't have. Um, you know, I don't know skills-wise what his coding and all that kind of programming knowledge is like. You know, it's obviously pretty good to make the videos, but he definitely had the business knowledge to think of all these ideas and invest his money into it. And it went from there. So once his ad was on the site, I suddenly started getting emails like every week was like, oh, we want to advertise on your site. And this is where I learned a really important kind of principle of business is that you need to kind of make something look slightly like your desired outcome um, before anything actually happens. 
and that might sound a bit confusing, but I know I'm going off on a tangent here, but I think it's a really valuable lesson that perhaps no, people should learn from. No, please go on this. I, I want to talk about this. Yeah, yeah. Please. Um, is like, for example, what I've just described, you know, if you want to sell advertising on your site, don't just have a big blank space and say you want to buy some advertising because people aren't going to come in. It's going to be like a restaurant that has, you know, like there's hundreds of tables, but there's no one inside on a Saturday night. You know, getting that first few people in the door is really, really hard. But then once there's a, you know, people shouting and screaming and, you know, well, perhaps not screaming, but uh, drinking and, you know, things going on, more people will just start to come through the door. And I had this with the newsletters, which we'll probably talk about at some point. Um, so on Ruby Weekly, for example, I found that if I put a screenshot up of what the newsletter would look like, but without actually doing the newsletter, the conversion rate on the sign-up page would be much higher than without the image. It was something like 40% of people would sign up with the image and 4% without the preview. So anyone who does an email newsletter and doesn't have a preview, I think is absolutely crazy. Um, just for that reason. So I've actually, this is part of the reason I've had some success in the last few years, is that I've picked up some of these principles from running blog like you know Ruby Inside and taken them into other things I've done. I've learned a small thing from everything, and it's built up this big snowball now that's kind of almost running on its own. Um, so yeah, I know that's a big tangent, but uh, you know, if anyone can take a lesson away from this podcast, kind of see where it is you want to go. And then even if you have to give away advertising, even if you have to give away a job ad, let's say you want to start selling job ads on your site, you know, if you can get job ads for a few sort of well-known companies in your niche on that sidebar on your site, and then you've got the link that says, you know, take out a job ad, you're going to do way better than if you have the blank thing. Um, and that's true of everything, blogging, job ads, whatever. Get some bedrock stuff there, and then you can go with it. Yeah, absolutely. For those of you who are listening and you uh... – May or may not have listened to the podcast with the Meta Lab founder, Andrew Wilkinson. Uh, actually, on that podcast, we had a chance to say, fake it until you make it. And that's kind of what you do, right? You act as if for a moment. Exactly. Because you kind of have to, just to get to a particular place where you want to go. Because, you know, you can't be the hot girl until you actually dress up, right? You got you to gotta do something. So Yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky, though, um, because... I've noticed this a lot, and I've no, I know that like Amy Hoy has noticed this. She was on the podcast before, um, yeah. and a few of the perhaps the people I would consider to be, you know, into like selling stuff and into publishing stuff and doing similar things to me. I often get reports that geeks. I really hate doing these sort of generalizations, but there are many geeks that have these kind of weird like ethical systems where if anyone even slightly lies about one thing or gives any kind of impression that something isn't exactly as it really is, then you're lying. And that's like a big moral sin. And, you know, it's a really bad thing. So even like creating a preview of a newsletter, you know, actual screenshot that says like, it looks like a real newsletter and putting that up before you sent one, that's a big sin to some people. Um, but the, the thing is, you need to learn it. You know, this is true in life as well as on the internet. You know, you need to learn who to ignore. Yeah, absolutely. You know, th that's the problem, though, because I've come across so many people who are like, wow, you know, I love what you're doing. And, you know, they want some tips. and I give them some tips. And, you know, perhaps they do involve a slight bit of um, deception. So like, if you're starting a site like uh, Hacker News type site up, you know, you're going to need to initially create some accounts and do some commenting and have some discussions like, you know, with yourself or at least get some buddies in um, to start doing that, like to really kick it off. And then things will occur. Well, you always have this chicken and egg with everything. Yeah. There's nothing that you can make in this world. I mean, you can't uh, sell a car until you have a buyer. You can't buy a car until you have a uh, until there's a car to buy. I mean, this is 
it's the chicken and egg factor with everything. So I think you have to do something to get past that because which did come first, you know, the chicken or the egg? Exactly. Yeah. And you and you mentioned Jeffrey Grosenbach as uh, how you admire him in business. And for those of you who are listening, if you want to learn more about Jeffrey, I did do a show with him on this podcast. It was the very first show I had done because uh, one of the very first people that inspired me to do this podcast was, was Jeff because um, – He's got a signature voice. Everybody, if you hear Jeff's voice, you know Jeff's voice. And uh, and he's really smart with business. He's really smart with design. He's really smart with programming. And he's done some very fun things. And I, I would even like to revisit that conversation because he's he's a, a very unique person to have in our, our community and definitely somebody to look up to. That's uh, that's for sure. We definitely need a Grossenbach conf where all of us <laughs> who are like, you know, really like, you know, happy, you know, about all the stuff he's done. We can just go along and just like praise him all day. I would definitely attend. <laughs> I would, I would attend as well. I know that, that would he wouldn't awesome. though. That would be the sad thing about it. <laughs> no, he would not. He would not. I still remember it. Uh, at one of the rails comps I attended, but he, he dressed up like the guys that did uh, passenger. Right. Um, it, it, they, um, I don't, I can't recall their names. They, but they have a unique style about them. Yes. They're very fashionistas, and he came with his uh, mirror sunglasses, and he's he's just such a fun person. You know, he, he's just very adventurous. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but enough enough about Jeff. This is the show's <laughs> about Peter. So listen to episode one if you want to learn more about Jeff. But uh, Peter, you said you learned a lot of stuff uh, through all the different walks in life that you've been involved in and all the different things you've done. Um, I think the next place we should probably go is is – from what I understood and from what other people would say is that email is a dead technology. And I think you might be someone to say the exact opposite, that it's actually a hot, thriving market that you've kind of cornered uh, in the weekly space. So let's let's kick that conversation off. You've got four or five different email newsletters that are booming. What, what, what uh, got you into this and what's going on there? Well, first, I would actually – I semi-agree with those people who are saying, oh, email is dead. And I don't agree in my current context, but if we go back before I created the email newsletters, so let's say back to, I don't know, 2008, that 2009, that kind of area, I would have perhaps been one of those people who was at least thinking, even if I wasn't saying, because I, I try not to say too many negative things online because people kind of start attributing that feeling to you and start not liking you. Right. Um, important advice there for people. Um But I perhaps would have thought that. I think, you know, oh, email, like email newsletters, that's kind of a 90s type of concept. But one of the things I'm really, really into is like not always trusting my own opinion on things, but actually looking at what is really happening in the world and, and not actually going out for asking for advice. Um, because I had tons of advice when I started Ruby Weekly, people saying, why are you doing this with email? Email's old fashioned and you should do this as an RSS feed. I don't pay attention to that. But what I look at is what is actually happening out there. And we had things like uh, Groupon and, uh, I mean, there were tons of email newsletters. Absolutely, like, yeah. Uh, Help a Reporter Out was a really big one, um, which sold, I think, for about $20 million or something crazy, like, a couple of years ago. Um, but there was so much going on. And uh, there's this guy who's well-known in the, the Hacker News Y Combinator scene called Jason L. Baptiste. And he, I think he runs OnSwipe now, which is like a WordPress plugin to make your uh, blog look good on an iPad. And he did some blog posts called uh, something like – I can't remember the exact name, but it was basically giving you a list of email newsletters that were reasonably modern and you know how much they were making if people had revealed that and just how hot the space was. And I was thinking, 
hang on, perhaps there is something in this, you know, and I'm kind of into publishing and into blogging. You know, I'm just going to give it a go because, I mean, it all seems a bit kind of pie in the sky to me, but I'll give it a go because that's where a lot of the best things, you know, I've done have come from. Um, it's actually seeing what works and trying to copy it. So I bought the domain rubyweekly.com and this was in, you know, while I was in the middle of doing Ruby Inside and all my sort of other Ruby sites and blogs and so on. And I let it sit for a while because I didn't really know how to get going, but eventually it got to a point where I thought someone else in the community was going to create one. They were kind of giving these kind of impressions that they were looking to get into that area. And if there's anything that kind of makes me really like immediately sit up and take notice it's when other people are doing things that I think, that's my idea. Why are you going to do that? Um, mm. So I literally overnight put up a site, made this preview email that I talked about, uh, put a sign-up box, signed up with MailChimp. Actually, I think I already had an account with them for something else, but I set up a list on MailChimp and released it the next day. So it was just, bam, done. And I mentioned it on well, I mentioned it on Twitter, so I have quite a reasonable following on there because I've just been on it a long time. Right. Uh, I had Ruby Inside. I had a few other Ruby blogs and things like that. Mentioned it. I got some of the negative comments. I've already mentioned those. But in the first, I think it was the first 24 or 48 hours, I got about 1,200 signups to Ruby Weekly. So I thought, okay, that's pretty cool. Um, you know, that's enough for me to... No, that's really cool. You know, 1,200 is a lot. Yeah, that's enough for me to sort of actually, you know, put the time in and do a really good first issue, and which was called issue four. So this is where one of those kind of lies comes out. Um, uh, it was issue four, even though issues one through well, three. Let's say fib. Was it a fib or a lie? It was a lie, but, um, you know, I don't believe that lying is necessarily bad as long as no one is being hurt by it. I mean, we all lie. Yeah, I guess this is an ethical issue that people discuss all the time. Should you have little white lies? Um, You know, I think, yes, they do. They ease um, relations sometimes, and they ease business, and that's what I did here. So uh, we started off with issue four, and, yeah, it just went really well. But uh, I never considered it as a business. It was always something that I'm just doing this as part of my you know, just building up this publishing thing. But I wasn't trying to make money out of Ruby uh, Weekly. I didn't have any ads in it. Um, the only thing I did think in my mind was that if I ever decide to kind of copy Jeff again um, and actually start making screencasts or ebooks or things like that, I could then promote them to this list. So if I had a list of a few thousand people, you know, what percentage would buy one? You know, if I was selling a screencast for, say, $19 or something, you know, once you've got a few thousand subscribers, what if 100 could buy that screencast? Oh, that's almost $2,000. What if I could make a screencast every month? Well, that's $2,000 a month. You know, and you start thinking of the numbers in that way. Right. Um, but as it happened, I actually did get some inquiries for advertising. So I did run some initial campaigns, did some affiliate stuff. Um, and it just went from there. And it just grew and grew and grew. And I, you know, it started actually making money. And it actually costs a lot of money to run because I have to pay MailChimp uh, like a few hundred dollars a month. But uh yeah, in terms of its actual profit, it worked very well, and how quick to profit? Yeah, but it's I, um, if you and I mean, how quick? How quick did you get to profit? Well, it's hard to say because I mean, you might say, okay, my time is worth X, and perhaps I spent two hours, you know, researching something for it, and does that add up? Blah blah blah. Uh, but in terms of actually being some sort of like onerous kind of thing, like some sort of ball and chain around my neck, that never happened. Uh, you know, literally within a few weeks of it starting, you know, I was able to run, promote other people's courses and stuff like that and have some income from it. So it wasn't, you know, just a – it was a side project, but it wasn't something that, you know, was costing me money. So 
how quickly did you have to, or did you think about buying every other blah weekly dot coms that you thought you might get into? Well, obviously, Ruby Weekly reached a point where I thought, hang on, this medium works, and I've kind of got a pattern here, and I can replicate that pattern. And uh, I'd already done that with blogs. I'd expanded my blog from uh, Ruby into a Rails one, which actually didn't work out in the end. Um, But, yeah, this kind of concept in publishing. If one thing works, you can move it into a different topic area. And... Again, from you know, I was one of these people that was like, "Oh, JavaScript is a bit, you know, a bit lame. Uh, you know, not that great. You, know, you can do some AJAX stuff and whatever." But I wasn't a massive fan. But I thought, "Hang on, you know, I'm in publishing here. I want to expand." And I kind of got this feeling, this gut feeling, from reading Hacker News and Reddit and sites like that, that JavaScript is going to be really, really big in a couple of years. Um, mm. And I thought, I need to get into this. I need to get interested in JavaScript. I need to learn JavaScript. I need to really push into this because I think JavaScript is going to be like the scene that was around Ruby in 2006, 2007. That's going to come to JavaScript, and I want to be in the middle of it. So that's pretty much what happened. And I thought, well, there's so many people that do Ruby that do JavaScript as well. What I'll do is I'll create a JavaScript newsletter called JavaScript Weekly. It will follow exactly the same type of format. And, you know, we'll see what happens. I can sort of... You know, bootstrap it from the Ruby Weekly audience, which at the time I think was about seven or eight thousand people. And I thought, you know, even if only ten percent of them sign up, you know, we've got something happening there. And it worked. It just worked really well. Um, you know, I had the systems in place to make the newsletter. It just worked out excellently. Um, and that you had the recipe yeah. down pat. I mean, you could tell too, and you got not, and not that it's a bad thing. It's definitely a good thing because it's like an immediate trust factor that oh, here's another weekly newsletter from cooper press slash peter cooper i I trust html5 weekly or i trust ruby weekly or i trust javascript weekly why not trust dart weekly (laughs) or even status code which is your your latest one which i think i want to ask you why is why is status code not on the cooper press homepage (laughs) very good observation i did i was thinking is it because you don't want to fib or lie or whatever no 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 it's not it's not out yet no no, it's nothing to do with that it's not out yet it's coming out february the first that's at statuscode.org um no the reason for that is that i'm actually redeveloping the cooper press site i've got a merchant account all that type of thing set up so i can put my training into it so the whole site's being overhauled so i'm not updating it really Mm, um so that's the main reason but the thing is, you know, I'm being pragmatic. I was surprised by that, though, because you have such a such a such an amount. I don't know your analytics, but I can only assume that you have a lot of in links to CooperPress.com. So I don't think so. You're actually. missing out. I don't think I have that many links to it because I mean, no? people tend to link to the newsletters rather than you know when they're tweeting. They're always mentioning the newsletters. They don't mention. So Cooper maybe Press. I'm your only stalker then. I, I think I'm the only person that goes to uh, you know what is it uh, PeterC.org, I think and CooperPress. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm your only number one fan, I guess. Yeah, so no, I've really been focusing on like the higher traffic places, which is for me is Twitter and the other newsletters and stuff like that um, in order to promote status code, which I guess we didn't really mention what it is. But uh, yeah, the reason that I've done status code is because, as I mentioned, that process with JavaScript Weekly and expanding from one area into another bigger, perhaps more exciting area is that I'm doing the same thing here. So as you mentioned, I've got Ruby Weekly, JavaScript Weekly, HTML5 Weekly, Dart Weekly, which isn't a weekly because there's not enough Dart news to come out every week, sadly. Um, I was wondering about that. Yeah, there may be one day, but uh, at the moment it's... I think people yeah. even wondered if it was uh, just for fun, like you were, you were poking fun at Dart. A few people did say that. 
but no, it exists. <laughs> it comes out every now and then, um, but it's literally once or twice a month at the moment. Um, but I've actually mentioned on the, to the subscribers that that's how it is until Dart really takes off. And I've been in touch with their team, and they're like, "Yeah, Dart, you know, it's coming along, but it's really going to get more exciting in sort of like you know, six years, uh, six months, yeah. <laughs> six years, um, six months to a year, that type of thing." They're really still working on it. Um, but status code is basically another kind of leapfrog moment, really. Um, I want to build on the audience I've got. Uh, so the audience I've got now, it's almost approaching 50,000 subscribers. So, you know, it's really been taking off. Um, but I want to aim at all developers, or perhaps not all developers, but all programmers. And you may think, what is the difference there? Well, I'm really aiming at people who are, you know, have at least an, a, an interest in computer science, who have an interest in algorithms, who have an interest in, you know, there's a new version of MySQL or a new version of Postgres or, uh, you know, there's a new uh, NoSQL, you know, NoSQL database on the scene. It's getting all that kind of generic stuff um, all into a single email that is suitable for, you know, pretty much most programmers. It's not all going to be just Ruby links or just JavaScript links. It's going to be wow, someone's had this amazing new idea, they've built a new IDE, and it's going to be more that type of thing. So I really want to expand it, and I think that's what's going to take it to these much higher numbers, you know, into the sort of the hundreds of thousands, um, because then it means I can target, you know, .NET developers. I can pretty much advertise or promote or talk to people in almost any programming realm, and there will be kind of progressive, you know, deep thinker type programmers who would, you know, relish uh, an email like that. So that's where it's going. And so I've kind of almost decided that, I'm, you know, I'm doing this publishing stuff, I'm doing the live training stuff, I've got all these things going on, but email I'm kind of making, you know, it's, it's up on the pedestal at the moment. And I'm thinking if there's anywhere that I'm going to go with this, it'll be with the email. Um, but then also, you know, I do recognize that people don't all want to receive email, so I'm actually creating like a member's site. You don't have to pay or anything, but you, you have to log in and then you can get access to a special RSS feed, t- stuff like that. It's a little bit more kind of closed in than your typical website. Um, a bit like the email is, you know, it's more of a direct connection. Uh, so that's the area that I want to expand it. But uh, whether it will work or not, I don't know. But as I mentioned before, I used to be quite naive in business. Now I have a, a much better feeling for what the things I know and don't know are so I can actually reach out to people and learn more and, you know, actually be a bit more humble about it and uh, have a better outcome, I hope. So for those out there that are in, I guess, just marketing in general or just anybody who markets, right? You got to market your product. You got to market who you are. You got to self-promote something. What uh, what can you glean from what you've learned about email and some of the things you've learned with specifically the monster of email that you can share with us? It's, I don't have any ideas what might be specific, but maybe you've got some very distinct things that complete unknowns to you at first that are just clear to you now about email. About email? Oh, I'll and like subscribing and sending and you know curating the content how to put it out you know how to judge subscribers like what are some nuggets in there that are things that were completely unknown to you that you've learned now that you kind of really lean on to to get the job done right i guess a lot of it has been stabbing in the dark so that may be a common theme with some of the things that i've done uh, and if you come up with an idea and off we go and we'll see if it works or not so one of the things I definitely learned, which I mentioned before, was about having some kind of preview image uh, on the sign-up page and really making that sign-up page as simple as possible while giving sort of the main promise. So it's, it all comes from this thing where you, you're creating these what some people call squeeze pages to make someone do something to kind of cause a conversion uh, from one state to another, which in my case is from a non-subscriber to a subscriber. And the simpler you can make that, 
while getting the benefits in, the better. I've uh, done split testing. I've had slightly more complicated pages, simpler pages, uh, pages even with the subscriber count on and things like that. And every time I added something to the page, it made the conversion rate drop. So I don't know whether this is specific to email or just specific to the way that I've you know sold the email newsletters to people, but that seems to be true for me. So actually taking off like preferences checkboxes and asking for names and stuff like that, the more I take off stuff like that, the better I do with the signups. Um, and it doesn't seem to impact the unsubscribes either. So it's not like people are being tricked into signing up. Um, so that is really good. Um, but other than that, what has really surprised me is how well promoted they've been on Twitter, which is something I never would have imagined in a million years that, you know, people would um, put a tweet on, you know, they'd, they'd receive the newsletter, they'd go through it and they'd share the links uh, on Twitter. And I haven't even put links in the email to do this. People say, oh, you know, I found this link on whatever the name of the newsletter is. Um, or they'd even just write a, tw- a tweet saying, wow, I love receiving, you know, whatever the, the newsletter is. And I never thought that would happen. So I guess I've kind of learned that if you are getting it right, those types of things will happen and you can perhaps rely on them as uh, promotional techniques that you know you aren't really directly involved in. Um, but further to that, I must admit, there's not a lot that I don't think I can really say about email. I, I get emails from people who are saying, oh, I'm starting up a weekly newsletter. You know, I've been inspired by you. What are some of the things I can do? And because I'm kind of currently in the middle of this sort of maelstrom of ideas and you know different newsletters and stuff like that it's very hard for me to figure out what parts uh, really made it fly but if i look at emails that perhaps don't work it's when they are just absolutely littered with advertising when they only link to their own site and that's a real cardinal sin in my opinion like if you if you're creating something that's like an email newsletter that is news it's not just news about you but it's a community just linking to blog posts that are on your own site, you know, that's not cool. Uh, you know, you're already in their email client. You don't need to sort of keep driving them to just your site. Get your site in there, but also link to other stuff. It makes you seem more honest, um, you know, more caring that they see what's cool, even if you didn't make it. And uh, that seems to have been a big influence. Um, I know there are sites that are big in the programming world that have newsletters, but they always just link to their own stuff. And, how many newsletters do you want to subscribe to? Do you really want to subscribe to 10 different sites that you like? Uh, or would you rather subscribe to one kind of email newsletter that's not scared of you know, linking to lots of different people? So that's a big thing. Um, but other than that, it's just practice. Just keep doing it because I know people who've started email newsletters that didn't do very well to start with. You know, they, perhaps they had like 50 subscribers for issue one and, you know, it built up very slowly and, you know, but then they got mentioned on another site and then they started getting included on perhaps the official homepage of the project that they're the newsletter for and stuff like that. And then it's built up, uh, you know, literally like, you know, rolling a snowball and the snowball goes along and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, eventually you can push it down a hill and off it goes. Um, So if you're going to do something like this, and I've seen so many people do this. They come along, they create a newsletter, they do a couple of issues, doesn't take off, they give up. And um, But I guess that's really generic advice for almost any business, any project. I mean, with Weekly, though, you can't really get off that uh, the boat, though. I mean, if you've got the promise of Weekly, you, you kind of have dictated the consistency in which they're going to subscribe to, right? I mean, it's kind of part of the brand. That's true, but I must admit with Dart Weekly, it's definitely not weekly. Um, 
I don't know. I, I read, what's today? Today is Wednesday. I got an HTML5 email today. I'm sure on Friday I'll get my JavaScript oh, yeah. weekly email, right? So you've got a you've got a good consistent schedule there that I maybe that's uh, I'm not trying to steal the conversation away and say, hey, no, no, really, this is what you did right and this is what you should <laughs> say. But it's like I see some consistency there, so it's it's definitely gotta be that. But you also mentioned one other thing. You said you, you unexpectedly got promotion on Twitter. Yes. Even though you don't have Twitter handles for any of these weekly things. No, there's not a direct one for them, although JavaScript Weekly now does have daily JavaScript, which I only launched like two weeks ago, um, which is kind of like a sister account for people who want like a bigger flood of JavaScript stuff because there's just too much stuff going on in the JavaScript world. So I made yeah. that, um, but it's not exactly... You can do a lot yeah. of retweets and yeah. Exactly. Um, one other thing I, I like about this, which you've done with the weeklies as well, is it's at least this is what I'm gleaning from it. So I've seen you produce Ruby Inside, and I know, audience, we've been on this kick for a while now, but I think this is such a great topic because uh, Peter's big into publishing. He does it very well, and he's been through the whole entire spectrum. So let's let's kind of maybe close the loop a little bit on where we're going with this with the fact that you had Ruby Inside. You had even, what was it, Rails Inside, I believe, and yep. that was a lot of content on your site. And I know because when Netherland and myself, we produced the changelog, and I know how difficult it is to have uh, you know, original, what they call original content. If you're not linking to somebody else, you've got to create that content. And what you've done with the weeklies is you've opened yourself up to becoming the the beacon to everybody. But at the same time, you're just pointing to everybody else. All you are now is a – I mean, I don't mean that in a bad way, <laughs> in a negative way, is that you're a very articulated and very well-curated list to everyone else rather than having to be the hub and have to be the person to produce all that content. So maybe you could speak against that a little bit because I know that it's got to be difficult to to keep that up, right? Posting a, a blog post that's sophisticated that dives into a code snippet very deeply, or you know, expresses your heart about a certain way to write Ruby, it's got to be difficult to do that every day, right? But in this case, you kind of get away with not having to be the smartest man in the room. Yeah, I kind of had that process of you know writing all of the time um, with Ruby inside um, for its first few years. And, you know, I was always pointing to things. I wasn't actually writing a lot of articles as such. There would be occasional ones, but uh, I was still pointing out to things. Uh, but the, I was actually getting to write at least a few paragraphs and show a code example, a bit like you do with the changelog now. I kind of did that sort of process for Ruby um, with very sporadic, longer uh, bits. Whereas now I've moved that kind of curation into the newsletters, and now I literally post perhaps once or twice a month on Ruby Inside with a longer tutorial-type piece or, you know, something along those lines. Um, but I guess, you know, like, yeah, if you add it all up in, like, the words that I write and stuff like that, I've definitely moved more from being someone who produces original content in a kind of a, a mass media form, so in, like, a, a blog or email form, um, to being in that media a bit more like a John Gruber or um, – I mean, yeah, obviously I'm putting myself up on a pedal here, but uh, you know, like a Matt Drudge of the Drudge Report, that type of thing where I'm literally saying, wow, check this out. Wow, check this out, you know, and just giving very basic explanations of what it is that uh, you know, I'm seeing. But the thing is that does have a lot of value because if someone who really knows you know, the scene – I really you know, do know the Ruby scene quite well and the technology involved – so I know that when a blog post comes along, I know whether it's nonsense or whether it's something that you know people should really stand up and listen to. And that's what I can get into the newsletters. I can say that and I can get that in there and people trust that I know how to do that. Um, 
So that's become very valuable. But then, you know, I think it is important to write original content as well. So I have kept doing that um, on Ruby's side. But yes, it's difficult. It takes a lot longer to do. And I think if I'm going to put that effort into producing you know, big original works, then why don't I do it as a screencast that I can sell to the people who are reading the curated stuff? Because the good thing about being uh, you know, known for good curation is that as long as you are you know, reasonably ethically sound, you know, you're a you know, straight-up type of guy, uh, you may tell the odd white lie, as I've already mentioned, but uh, you know, if you're someone who wouldn't promote something that's really bad – and you can pr- produce something like a screencast or an ebook or something like or a course, which I've also been doing, and you can put those into the things that you're already curating. You've kind of your reputation for being a good curator rubs off onto that because it's like, wow, if he's recommending this, it must be good, even though I'm recommending my own stuff. You see what I mean? So I'm not right. I'm not covering it up. I'm not saying, oh, look at this great course, and then just like leaving my name off. Um, it's like you know, oh, I've launched this course. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And because people have those kind of good emotions and good feelings of like, you know, oh, you know, he's he's given me a good article to read like at least once a week. Um, they think, well, actually, you know, perhaps his course is good. And that's not always a logical thing. It is a very emotional thing because. Just because I'm a good curator, um, you know, good curator doesn't mean I'm a good creator. Um, there you go. I might have come up with a quote there. Um, there you go. You know, but I've I've realised and I've had to acknowledge and you know I am to a certain level a normal you know kind of normal everyday geek, but I've had to realise that when it comes to human communication and sending emails and blogging, emotions come so much into it that I would be stupid to ignore, you know, that angle of it. So I've really bought that in. Um, well, what I mean about you know people feeling good about what I do and you know enjoying receiving the emails, I can use that to then make people feel good about you know the other things that I promote, which perhaps have a more uh, commercial slant to them. Um, and that seems to have just worked out really well. So it's really helped me promote like the screencasts that I've done and the courses that I do. You know that goodwill comes through, um, and I think it all just boils down to emotion at the end of the day. Um, but I will admit there's a lot about like the human psyche and emotion and selling and stuff like that that I do not know. Um, I have no idea why if you go to a conference and someone puts up uh, funny meme pictures on the slides, why everyone thinks that's hilarious. I'm sitting there going, I'm so confused. Um, you know, so there's a lot I don't understand. But all these different projects that I've done, I'm always learning a bit more, a bit more, and definitely found out that being known as a good curator really helps your business overall. Well, actually, just something to add to that, you may have noticed some of the other um, successful companies out there, like, um, let's say, Buffer, for example, who I use for scheduling tweets. Their Twitter account is mostly linking to other articles about tweeting. But it's not all just saying, oh, wow, Buffer is amazing. Buffer is amazing. It's kind of this whole modern idea of promoting other people's stuff. And because people think, wow, you know, you've promoted some really good posts and you've linked to me some good stuff, then you must be cool. And, you know, we've seen Guy Kawasaki. He's really famous for it. He just tweets constantly cool images and cool websites. And you think, wow, that, you know, Guy Kawasaki, he's awesome. Well, is he? Like, you know, he's done some good talks and, you know, he's done some books. But even if you didn't read that stuff and know that he's a good person at heart, just from getting those links, you might think, yeah, he's kind of cool. But how do you know that? You know, so that's what I perhaps realized and learned recently. And I'm tapping into that using the curation. I think curation is definitely where it's um, where it's going. I know with the change log, we've 
just by happenstance of what the change log technically is and in, in its um, in its own meaning beyond the blog that we produce and the podcast we produce, but it's uh, you know it's a constant feed of what's new, what's fresh, what's um, you know that's kind of like our tagline basically. But we found that the more we kept it curated versus promoting everything that people ask us to promote, the better and better response we got in general. Because we we get tons of emails to to us, and it's not saying that hey, if you sent us an email, we never promoted that your project wasn't good. It was just that. We honestly don't have the time to promote every single thing, but when we do have the time to do it, it's going to be what we can kind of, like you almost say, like you can kind of bless the things that you've you've linked to because you've looked at it. It's kind of like Peter's approval almost, you know, yeah. because you're you're the main curator of all the weekly newsletters, and it also gives you, like you said, a chance to to link out to the fun things that you are producing. So what? Let's let's uh, bend it just a little tiny bit to the right, and let's talk about when you produce content. So you you want to be a publisher. You are a publisher. Uh, you're producing content. That content has to have some sort of shelf life. Has to have some sort of way to make money. Has to have some sort of way to attract an audience. And I'm really curious because I look at all the different weekly websites uh, to to get the subscribers. None of them say, "Hey, advertise here." Hey, advertise here. This is how much it costs. What is your approach to getting sponsors and advertisers? Is it something you you have a, a small sales force? You know, do you take a day out of the week and do it? What is your approach towards getting people to pay you to do this content? There is actually a, a, an advertising page on JavaScript Weekly, but it's so tiny. It's so tiny. I don't. I hardly mention it. It was literally just done to like push people to it. They emailed me, um, so I'm not sure where I've linked it actually. But I think it's linked in each email, um, like very tiny link. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's something that I've not focused on, and I never focus on this initially when I start a project. I want to see whether it will get traction before I do advertising. Um, you know, I might advertise my own things on it, but I don't want to. I, I really hate lying to advertisers and sort of, you know, bigging something up when it's not, you know, that thing. Whereas if I have 20,000 subscribers to something, then I'm happy to say, wow, look at this audience I've got. You know, you should advertise. Um, so, but it also does come back to that thing I was saying about being naive in business because I don't start things off always thinking, oh, there's a business goal to this. Um, you know, I'm thinking more of these chains of events. If I start this off, then such and such may happen, and then something else may happen, and so on. So, in terms of the advertising, though, and this is how it's currently working on JavaScript Weekly and HTML5 Weekly, yeah. Not Ruby Weekly, because I've got my own things to promote on there. But on those other two, which add up to about 30,000 or so subscribers at the moment, there's a company called Launchbit, and they're available at launchbit.com, and they you know, take charge of the advertising for me. They find advertisers and they pay me um, a set amount. You know, we renegotiate every now and then, but they pay me a set amount each week to, you know, include their unit in there. Um, and they go out to other advertisers like sort of AppSumo and, uh, you know, Censure and all these different companies that are in like the tech, progressive tech scene. Um, and they advertise through them. So, you know, they obviously earn a cut off of that. Um, and that's been really good for me because it means I don't have to, always be involved with the advertisers which you know i love the advertisers but i'm perhaps not very good at selling to them i'm better at having a relationship with them than actually starting the relationship uh so that's been really good um and that's how it works so you know i may make more money if i sort of dedicate myself to being like you know the main sales guy or even getting someone to do sales like directly for me but this is easier for now and if i can perhaps forget about doing the sales for now and just build those numbers up 
you know, when I can say, wow, look, I have 100,000 people I'm emailing each week here who are interested in programming, let's say, there are people who are going to say, look, we just want to advertise on that. Just tell us how much it is. Um, and that's what I'm aiming for. So it's really building up. Yeah, they don't really care about the relationship. They just want to say, what's your price? Can we buy it? <laughs> exactly. Um, and I've, also, I've already had that to a certain extent with job ads. Um, that is an area where recruiters are very progressive in approaching you to advertise. Um, whereas if you say like the big accounts, like your sort of your Microsoft, you know, that these people like Microsoft and Adobe and, you know, they advertise on lots of sites and spend tons of money, but they don't approach small newsletters like mine and say, we want to advertise. It just doesn't happen. You have to be either with an agency or you have to approach them in a certain way. It's, it's a hard thing to do. Uh, whereas job ads, they come to you. So that's something that, uh, you know, I've been moving into and, um, you know, doing quite well with. So not only do you produce content like, uh, like your blog, like your weekly newsletters, you're also, and this kind of dovetails back into what you said early, early on when you were just a child, you said you were kind of rewriting or trying to write your own textbook more or less to teach somebody. Do you, do you feel like it was just an easy transition into screencasting and or even do, doing the online training? Because you've done some really great courses. Ruby Reloaded is is the course you have. It's about, I think you're like four runs into it now. Am I right? Yeah, I've done four runs of that. And also with uh, Jeffrey McManus's uh, Code Lessons site, which is kind of almost like one of the pioneers, this whole new idea of having like, you know, online tuition. Um, I've done, I think, about seven or eight runs of that which is a totally different thing to Ruby Reloaded. Ruby Reloaded is live and uses video, whereas um, Code Lesson is like a long-term, like eight-week course. Uh, not eight-week, right. four-week course, sorry. Um, that's forum-based, so totally different things. But uh, yeah, a lot of experience in uh, that area as well. What do you learn whenever you start doing the online training pieces? I mean, that seems like such a big animal to to organize your one person. I mean, it just seems like so many moving parts. And you said before we got on this call, you listened to the the Founder Stock episode with Andrew um, from Meta Lab, and you know in that in that podcast we kind of talk about him being the one man band for a little bit and how he learned to delegate to succeed and stuff like that. So, I mean, I kind of see you almost, and I'm not saying you're getting fatigued, but I can only imagine how you're not getting fatigued. Like, how are you doing all this on your own? I'm one of those people where I've and I've learned this the hard way. Where if I don't have lots and lots of things to do work-wise, I mean, in my personal life, I love having nothing to do and relaxing and whatever on my time off. Um, but in my work life, if I don't have anything to do, I sort of become very kind of bummed out and depressed very easily. So that's why it's kind of like it's, this is a natural thing. This isn't a case of me taking on too much work. This is me having enough work and enough projects going so that I'm energized to do it all, which I know might seem a little bit back to front, but... The thing is, because I work, yeah, I work for myself. I enjoy it too much. So, um, and I know that perhaps seems a little bit kind of Tony Robbins, kind of like you know airy fairy, but that's what it is for me. You know, work is something I really enjoy, and I have no choice. Like, if I don't do this, then it's having a full time job or you know contracting or whatever. And the thought of doing that type of thing, and this is by no way like uh, a diss on anyone who does have a full time job or contracts, but to me, I find that extremely unpleasant. Whereas the risk you know, that's involved in what I do, I find that very pleasant. So I'm moving towards that. But I know for other people, the equation is somewhat different. But for me, it scares me so much about having a normal job that I need to, have, I need to do all this stuff. And I you know, enjoy it for it as well. So let's, let's talk about things that you do enjoy or things that you even aspire to do in life. 
one of the oldest websites I'm a subscriber to myself, 43things.com. You got it. A list of your, what I think is called your life list, what you want to do. You've got move to California in there. You got visit Japan, even get a PhD. And I'm surprised you don't have a PhD by now, considering <laughs> all the things you've done. But I mean, when you maintain a list like this, you have to be pretty focused. Do you are you familiar with? Any, uh, well, there's even a favorite there too. Number thirteen, me Gary Vaynerchuk. I know that listeners of the show they've heard me talk about uh, get uh, his book, which is uh, which is Crush It. And I've even had to tweet the link to it because people don't understand what I say when I say it. So it's called Crush It. <laughs> uh, but you got me, very uh, Gary Vaynerchuk on here. I mean, you you must have some clear goals where you want to want to go in life. Tell me about some of these things on this list. I guess get a PhD or even meet Gary. What what are you even have Tony Robbins in there too? Look at that. Attend a Tony <laughs> Robbins seminar. Speak of the devil. Exactly. Um, I must admit, that list is quite old. It's like so old that I even have to like bring it up and click on it myself now just to remind myself what was on it. Um, I have kept it slightly up to date over the years, but it is very sort of vague, and I probably should tick off a few of the things that perhaps I have done, which does not include get a PhD, sadly. Um, and just an aside on that, uh, I actually left education at 16 and have done no more. So... Um, you know, that's not un- entirely unusual in the UK, but it, perhaps it's unusual amongst geeks generally who go on to university and, you know, get a computer science degree or that type of thing. So it's something I hope to come to in later life. Um, but yeah, I, I guess, I just, you know, I think it was a popular thing when this 43 things came out that people went around, looked for things that they perhaps like to do one day and add them on. And, um, but in my case, you know, yeah, I would definitely like to do those things. And, uh, yeah, t- I mean, I mentioned Tony Robbins and I, in a kind of slightly disparaging way, but uh, I do like some of those folks who, you know, do some of the self-help stuff. And if you listen to enough of it, if you listen to like tr- just one thing on its own, it seems really weird and brash and slightly strange. But if you listen to quite a lot of that stuff from different people, uh, you know, of his kind of ilk, you do eventually start getting some kind of good things out of it. Uh, you know, I was actually listening to um, a bit of Tony Robbins in the car last night, just randomly, you know, and it sort of just, it always just gives me like a little bit of an extra boost, but I'm definitely not one of these people that is religious adherent to him. Um, and I got the same feeling from Gary Vaynerchuk as well. You know, a lot of the stuff that he perhaps used to say, he's not quite so much doing it now. Um, you know, he really had that kind of positive vibe. And if I can keep taking in those positive vibes from folks like them and any little ideas that perhaps they sort of add to that, to you know, self-help wisdom, uh, I'm willing to use them. And, uh, you know, that, it has worked really well. So you, you ask how I deal with that overload and stuff. Uh, you know, I think these guys are, like, even busier than me. You know, like, you know, Tony but Robbins. But they have a staff, though. Well, they've got, they have yeah, staff, they've got for staff, sure. But, you know, think about it. Like, all of the, the Tony Robbins stuff is on his brand. Like, he is the name. So if he does something bad, he's going down. Like, you know, that's really going to damage him. It's not some weird kind of company that doesn't have his name on it. Um you know, so I think the fact is they've got such big personal brands like Gary Vaynerchuk and Frank Kern, who's perhaps someone you might not be familiar with, but is quite big in the internet marketing scene, uh, and Tony Robbins. They are operating at a level that I know is even way, 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 way beyond where perhaps I believe they you know, ever get. But if they can carry all of that weight on their kind of like their personal brand shoulders and it all starting to sound a bit airy now, I must admit. I think things are relative, Peter. I'm about to stop you there because I think things are relative because 
you may not be in the same space that either those are in, those guys are in. Like Gary, he's in the tech world only because it's a means to an end. He wouldn't hmm. be on Twitter like he said unless he had something to promote. <laughs> he wouldn't be producing a wine blog unless he was very passionate about wine. So the only reason he's in the space. It's not because he doesn't enjoy it, because it was a means to an end. But yeah. but you, I'm gonna I'm gonna put myself out there and just say that I definitely think that. I mean, let's look at your brand, Cooper Press, right? Someday, five years, two years down the road, we're gonna look at that brand and say, well, if Peter's anything wrong, Cooper Press is going down because hey, <laughs> that's his personal brand. Yeah, you know. But let, let's let's talk about crossing something off the list. Speaking of Cooper Press, let's talk about number eight: self-publish my book. Yeah, this is something that actually it's really surprising that this hasn't happened because I've had so many kind of like started and aborted attempts at books um, that they've almost become like procrastination projects, I call them, which is where you have this project that you kind of keep procrastinating on. But the fact that you're procrastinating on it means you're getting something else done. And that's what's happened in the last year. I actually started a book called um, Self-Promotion for Geeks because – People told me on Hacker News, they're like, you know, you're really good at sort of promoting the projects you do and stuff. Can you share some of the ideas behind it? And I'm like, yeah, it's a great idea. Like, you know, vote up my uh, Hacker News post if you, uh, you know, think this is a good idea. And I think it got like 200 links, uh, 200 votes, which was massive at the time. This is like three years ago. Um, so then a year ago, I started to write this book and I actually wrote about half of it and kind of leaked some of it online. And people were like, wow, this is awesome. Like, you know, I actually got people start signing up. They wanted to buy it and so on. Um, and I was like, mm, I need to sort of like actually, you know, start rewriting some of it and, you know, finish the book. And then the whole email newsletter thing happened and the whole training course thing happened. And just so many things have happened in that time that every time I go back to doing the, the book and finishing it off, uh, you know, I only get a certain amount done. And then I think, oh, actually, I could be doing a new newsletter or something like that. So it's become my procrastination project. But I really want to finish it because I've got all these people that keep asking me about it. Every week, someone, you know, I meet someone, they're like, you were doing a book, weren't you? When's it coming out? And I'm like, oh, soon, I don't know. Uh, so, yes, number eight, I want to get that ticked off. But the fact is, I've got these email newsletters, the training, and, you know, if I am going to become overwhelmed with anything, I, you know, I definitely don't want to become overwhelmed. So I'm not going to say, right, yeah, I'm going to get the book done and it'll be out next week and then just do a really scrappy attempt at it. So that's where that's at. But I want to tick that number eight off, definitely. Yeah, I'd like you too as well because I I want to hear what you have to say. I mean, the tagline alone got me sold. I I know I put my email in the email list. Uh, so if you're listening to this, self promotion for geeks dot com, uh, and the tagline from what I can understand is a practical, no nonsense handbook for smart people, which is probably people that listen to the show with ideas and projects to share. So, Peter, I'm, I'm putting you on the hook, man. Well, the funny thing is, is that because I've stalled in writing that book, I now have lots more material. Because if you think about what I've done in the last year, which is the training courses and getting you know almost fifty thousand email subscribers in that time, well, I can write about that now. I, I you know I can at least say in the book, you know, oh, I've got this certain number of email subscribers and this is how I did it. You know, I can actually bake these experiences. So it's almost as if the longer I take to write the book, the better it will be. But you know, I, there are people, especially like Amy, for example. You know, Amy Hoy, we've already mentioned. You know, she'd be like, "Just get something finished. Just get it released. Get you know, actually get people paying for it because then you'll feel, uh, you know, motivated to actually get it all done. You've, you're on the line then." Um, but I keep coming back to this thing and thinking, the longer it takes, you know, the better it's going to be. But I need to stop being quite so, uh, yeah, protective and perfectionist about it. 
Well, I know there's a, a ton of things we could probably continue talking to uh, to you about. I mean, you're you're prolific in open source. You've done tons of things with software. You're super smart in programming. You've only gotten, I guess, in some cases, into programming because you have a desire to be a publisher. But um, you've got lots of stuff going on. And every show, pretty much, I try to ask the super secret question, which is, you know, is there anything that that we don't know about you that's upcoming that's you know hasn't been promoted yet hasn't been talked about yet that you can mention here on this show today i've heard that on the previous shows and i was panicking last night because i was thinking he's asking this question every time and i wear my heart kind of on my sleeve you know you've seen my twitter account i'm always putting stuff in embarrassing things like last night you know i went into a woman's restroom and yeah, know, i saw did, that I, you know I, I just put stuff out that like that out there um so no there isn't really you know i am planning to increase the the training surprisingly um and move that in a new area and I'm, i want to do some uh, screencasting in the javascript world so kind of like a try and perhaps become a bit of a um a ryan bates of the javascript world which if anyone who doesn't know him, he runs a site called Railscast, which is really, really cool. Has uh, free Ruby and Rails screencasts on there. And actually, you can pay now as well. Um, and he's got the pro option now, yeah, too. Yeah, so I'd love to do something like that for JavaScript, um, so which is something I've begun to plan, but I haven't had the time to record anything yet. Um, so there's perhaps just that. But I guess perhaps if you'd allow me, like I could just have like a, a leaving, like a takeaway message perhaps from this um, podcast, which... You were asking me about these kind of chains of progression through things, and I was actually thinking of you, and I was thinking that, you know, you have done the change log, and things have come out of that that, you know, perhaps you wouldn't have expected or gone straight to otherwise, which, like, exactly, like, why you are sitting here now talking to me, you know, why you are hosting a show for 5 by 5 you know, where did that come from? And from my point of view, it looks like, you know, you did... Um, the change log, and that's kind of put you on the radar. You've done the change log podcast. People know, you know, you're good at podcasting, and you've obviously been in touch with Dan, you know, the head honcho of 5 by 5 and, he, you know, you organized this whole thing, and that's the whole reason we're talking right now. So I've talked about all these chains where, you know, one thing has led to another, blogging led to email, and emails leading to, you know, this and that, and me protein books and screencasts. Well, it seems like this is true for everyone. Um, and if perhaps we can recognize some of these things, we can start thinking that, when we take on a new project, you know, let's say someone out there that's listening to this wants to create their own blog or wants to create their own podcast or a screencast, and they're thinking, why would I even do this? Well, you shouldn't think about that. If you want to do it, just do it. Because when I created Ruby Inside, it was to promote a book. Well, Ruby Inside we progressed onto Ruby Weekly, which progressed onto JavaScript Weekly, which has progressed to me co-chairing an O'Reilly conference. Well, you couldn't have seen from me starting to write a book five or six years ago why that would be a chain to co-chairing, you know, what hopefully will be, you know, one of the biggest conferences in the JavaScript scene. So I really hope that anyone listening to this who's got a, a passion to, like, start a little project and perhaps people are asking them, why do you want to do that? Just do it because you may then end up in some sort of position in five or six years' time. One thing's led to another and suddenly, I don't know, you're president of the USA or whatever. Like, it's just funny how this happens. <laughs> and if that's one message that any everyone can take away, it's just that. Keep doing things that you want to do. Keep trying new things. Obviously, you know, kill things that totally bomb. Um, but then just keep these chains going, and you'll end up really interesting places. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's exactly at the – sometimes they call it the mile marker effect, where you, you want to run a five-mile run – 
but you think about the five miles, and that's tough. But when you think about it in increments of one mile or even half mile, you think about the very next marker, the very next marker. And by the time you look up, you're like, oh, I've got the five miles up done, taken care of. It's not like you have to treat life like that. You can't just jump into... Uh, you know, what you and, and I may have been able to do by just jumping into it. It's little by little, learn things and kind of uh, accumulate. That's I, I couldn't have said it any better than you've said it. Yeah. Besides, I, I tried to, I think. It's just funny how all of this has branched off of me personal blogging from the late <laughs> 90s, blogging about Ruby, getting found, you know, for writing a book, writing a book, making a blog about a book, making an email newsletter. It just, it's just funny looking back at all these chains. And the fact is just keep making chains, keep starting chains off, Keep following on them. Cool stuff will happen. Do not give up. Exactly. Keep releasing. Always keep releasing. So, uh, Peter, you know, I know you've. Uh, I hope you've had a lot of fun with me on on the show today. I, I think that uh, I've definitely had tons of fun probing your mind and asking you questions, and certainly learning a lot more about you than I've than I've known before this. And audience, I hope you've enjoyed Peter. You can check out uh, Peter what, Peter uh, at cooperpress.com and peterc.org if you want to learn more about him. It's where I kind of grab some of the links that um, I've given. But uh, you know where the show notes will be at. It'll be on 5by5.tv slash talk and whatever episode number this is. You'll see the show notes there. Um, I don't know. Peter, anything else you want to say? If anyone wants to ask me a question or just get a bit of advice or whatever, because I know this has been a theme on your show with people sort of asking other people for advice yeah. they don't know. You know, just literally tweet me. So that's the best way of doing it. P to C, simple as that. Just tweet me, ask me a question, or say, can I email you or whatever, and we'll do it that way. Uh, best way of getting in touch with me directly. Awesome. Well, Peter, again, thank you so much for a great conversation, my friend, and uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been great. I want to thank my sponsors once again, Less Accounting at lessaccounting.com and Flow at getflow.com. And most of all, thanks to you for listening to this show. Without you, it would not be possible. If you are interested in advertising on this show, you can hit us up at 5x5.tv slash advertise. Or you can email me directly, which is just as well, at adam at founderstalk.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.